When calling into a KZYX public affairs program, please keep in mind that all our public affairs programs, including Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, may be recorded and replayed at a later date and time and may be available for download from our website following the broadcast. Your comments may be heard on air or online during the program today and in the future. Support for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics comes from our members and Radiant Solar Technology. Radiant Solar Technology is ready to help plan power systems, advise on applicable incentives, conform to current codes, and prepare for future expansion. From solar panels to high-tech battery boxes, through sun, wind, and water, Radiant Solar Technology helps homes and businesses fill their renewable energy needs. Information at 707-485-8359 and RadiantSolarTech.com. Good morning, dear friends, and welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, we have an exciting interview coming up with my friend and prominent West Coast psychiatrist, Dr. Phil Wolfson, who recently was granted a federal license to do research on the psychedelic medicine, MDMA, known on the street as ecstasy. You're going to want to stay tuned and listen carefully to this interview with Dr. Wilson, because not only is he an expert on MDMA and many other psychedelics, but also because he's one of a few people in the United States, if not in the world, who did psychotherapy using MDMA back in its legal period before it was made illegal by the United States government. So stay tuned for this exciting and interesting interview with Dr. Phil Wilson. But first, a few notes on psychology and medicine. Nearly 55% of infants nationwide are put to bed with soft blankets or comforters, even though such bedding raises the chances of suffocation or sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS. This was reported by federal researchers on Monday. Did we all know that soft beds, soft blankets, and comforters are so dangerous? I wasn't aware until I read this. The study published in the journal Pediatrics is the first to estimate how many infants sleep with potentially hazardous quilts, bean bags, blankets, or pillows. Again, hazardous quilts, bean bags, blankets, and pillows. Despite recommendations to avoid putting anything but a baby in a crib, two-thirds of black and Latino parents still use bedding that is both unnecessary and unsafe, this study found. Doesn't say about Caucasian parents. I was startled a little bit by the number of people still using bedding in the sleep area, said Dr. Michael Goldstein, a neonatologist in York, Pennsylvania, who serves on a task force on sleep-related infant deaths. Sleeping face down on soft bedding increases the risk of sudden 
infant death syndrome 21-fold. That is quite dramatic. A word to all of us listening and to tell all your friends, tell everyone who has babies, no suffocation, please. Do not use soft blankets, comforters, bean bags, or pillows, or even blankets, they're saying, in the crib with the baby. What do you use, my engineer Mike Dolores says here? Well, I guess that's a very good question. If you don't use that, what do you use? Evidently, you either keep the room warm enough, or <laughs> we've got to find out what you do use. Listen in again next time, and I'll see if I can research this and talk to Dr. Goldstein in York, Pennsylvania, and find out what you do use. That's a great question, Michael. Okay, onward. Now, this one I put in because it just for the fun of it, uh, sort of. Two New York public hospitals, one in Harlem and one Lincoln Medical Center, actually in the Bronx, tested this new approach with 550 children and their families. And here's what the, quote, new approach is. Instead of giving children who are overweight pills, medication, and lectures, lo and behold, they're teaching children to eat fruits and vegetables. What an innovation. An analysis of the study during which the young patients met with their doctor or nutritionist and they were given instructions on eating fruits and vegetables and furthermore, they were given a certain amount of script or money in order to buy fruits or vegetables instead of the junk that they were getting. They were not given medication and guess what they found out? that 96% of the families who were in this studies at the end of the study of just four months ate more fruits and vegetables than before joining the program. And more than 90% of these families began shopping at farmer's markets two or three times a month. Wow. And most astonishing, and this is important, after just four months in the program, 40% of the children lowered their BMI, their body mass index, which is an indication that they also lost weight. So let's hear it for New York City's children being taught to eat fruits and vegetables. Might say they're 20 or 30 years behind, those of us out here in California, but the fact is if they get to it, they get to it, and that's what's important. Okay, that's it for news and notes in psychology and medicine. Let's move on now to our interview with the prominent psychiatrist, Dr. Phil Wolfson, who was recently granted a federal license to do research on the psychedelic medicine, MDMA, known on the street as ecstasy. Dr. Wolfson earned his BA at Brandeis University. He went on to graduate school at New York University School of Medicine, began practicing psychotherapy and psychiatry in California between 66 and 72, He's licensed to practice medicine in California and Washington. He's uh, been an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, has taught at several graduate schools. Dr. Wolfson is involved with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. You've heard the founder of that uh, institute, Dr. Rick Doblin, on this program. And 
Dr. Wolfson was also one of the founding members of the Hefter Research Institute, which is another psychedelic uh, research organization. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Phil. Thanks so much, Richard. Good morning. It's a beautiful day in Northern California. It's, it's a... pouring here in San Anselmo. I hope it is up your way, and that's good for fruits and vegetables. It is good for fruits and vegetables, and we sure need we sure need the the, the water here. Um, going back to 1953, the novelist Aldous Huxley took four tenths of a gram of mescaline in a glass of water and sat back to take the effect. He was supervised by psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond. Did you have the pleasure of knowing Humphrey Osmond? I did not. I read his books, but I never met him. I never have either. Osmond was one of a small group of psychiatrists who pioneered the use of LSD as a treatment for alcoholism and other mental disorders, as many of us in the field know. He was the one who termed who uh, coined the term psychedelic medicine. Psychedelic means mind manifesting. He researched LSD until it was halted in the 60s. Fast forward about 20 years, Dr. Phil Wolfson, who's here with us, is using MDMA legally in his psychotherapy practice. Tell us something about that, please, Phil. Well, I, I was running an alternative uh, psychiatric unit in Contra Costa County called I-Ward, which was based on the notion that people in altered states of uh, consciousness uh, could benefit from process work, mainly work with uh, uh, their actual state of psychosis, using family members and supportive teams, and going through the course of their uh, mental alteration. That would apply to first break schizophrenia, and to uh, some degree bipolar illness. And I had a, a very difficult patient who had been seriously wounded uh, chemically by the uh, usual drugs, and I was looking for an alternative substance, and I got turned on to Sasha Shulgin, uh, the great psychochemist, and uh, visited him, and uh, he suggested the use of MDMA, and uh, as it was legal in those days, he and his wife, Anne, uh, gave me a session, and my wife, and that was my introduction to MDMA. And from that point on, I began to see its utility as what we came to call an empathogen, namely a substance that uh, elicited warmth, closeness, an ability to handle negative emotions better, and an ability to find positive emotions. And I and uh, a large number of psychotherapists, psychiatrists, began to use MDMA in our clinical practice, which was in a, a great uh, many respects a revolution in psychotherapy psychiatry because you had to sit with people for long periods of time, and you could do open work uh, with process, and the sessions could last anywhere from three to five hours or longer, and you had to stay with people. So it was a, a fantastic opportunity really to get to know people and to uh, elicit new kinds of consciousness and reactions. What can you tell us uh, from your memory of your first session with MDMA when Dr. Shulgren and his wife administered it to you? Well, I, I was uh, not a naive subject. I had done my first uh, LSD trip in 1964 in med school, and uh, MDMA was quite a bit different in that it was not hallucinogenic. 
it was warm, it was uh, relatively easy to work with, to stay in touch, um, and it, it was, uh, in many respects, what it came to be called a love drug. It was an exciting way to be with people, to be uh, deeper in oneself, social, and to handle negativity, judgments, reactions that uh, might have been obsessional or interfering with relationship. And my session was uh, uh, a very close and warm session with people I hardly knew who were just generous, thoughtful people, and it was very helpful to my wife and me. Did you and your wife go on to use it together after that? Well, I unfortunately uh, had a, a terrible experience in my life. My oldest son, Noah, uh, contracted leukemia when he was near 13. <clears throat> and this was the year after that session, and I had begun using uh, what we called Adam in those days, MDMA, in therapy, especially with couples and occasionally with even families. And during the course of my son's four-year illness, uh, we as a, a family, mainly the parents, not the children, uh, would have sessions with MDMA uh, where uh, it would bring us back to a sense of family unity and process. I actually wrote about it in my book about my son's life and uh, illness. So it was a very valuable episodic support to uh, our lives and our ability to cope with a terrible illness. As an aside, please remind us of the name of the book that you wrote about yourself and your son. It's called Noe, A Father-Son Song of Love, Life, Illness, and Death. Is it available on Amazon? It is. Okay, say it again for us, please, Phil. Noe, A Father-Son Song of Love, Life, Illness, and Death. Thank, Thank you. you for asking. Oh, yes, and I remember actually we interviewed you about the book some years ago on this program. Yes. So you're using MDMA. You're a licensed psychiatrist, using it legally in your practice in California. And then comes Dr. George Riccardi, who publishes an article in the very prestigious journal, science in which he says that MDMA causes neurotoxicity, he said in primates, uh, after a common, this was one of the titles of his, of his article, after a common recreational dose regimen of MDMA. I'm sure you know about this quite well. You want to tell us the story about Riccardi and what happened after that? My memory's a little different, Richard. Um, uh, we uh, were working uh, with larger numbers of people, and um, DMA was spreading in a relatively small way when the DEA got in the act in 1984 and uh, insisted on scheduling the drug. The DEA appointed an, an administrative law judge to have a hearing, and uh, we had national press and a lot of us got up and talked about the merits of uh, MDMA. In fact, the judge found in favor of scheduling MDMA in a still accessible uh, schedule, which would be Schedule Two within the federal regulatory uh, statute. Um, and the DEA overruled that and uh, in 1985 made uh, ecstasy, MDMA, 
illegal. Subsequently, there was a vast explosion of use. Um, so illegalization had the impact of increasing interest in it, as it usually does. Riccardi, to my memory, came somewhat later. He was doing uh, so-called science, and he came to the periphery of the group and then towards MAPS, which had formed multi Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, to scientifically develop an argument uh, against the DEA scheduling showing the uh, utility scientifically and clinically for use of MDMA. And in that process, Riccardi, as, uh, there, as have others before him, uh, was making a reputation by basically doing pseudoscience and cultivating a negativity that would give him a reputation through the uh, Drug Enforcement uh, Agency and, and uh, give him uh, a position. So uh, as it evolved, he came towards us looking for experienced subjects that he could test in a variety of ways. And uh, as he was writing negative stories about uh, the uh, serotonergic and uh, problems with MDMA, um, he gained, gained stature and then published in Science after having gained that stature. And it turned out uh, that he and his group were so, so-called mistakenly using methamphetamine in their studies, at least two of them, but I believe others, and was forced to retract the data that implicated uh, MDMA. Unfortunately, uh, dirty work persists, and dirty minds have an effect, and the negativity towards MDMA continued. What was not talked about, and is always interesting to me, is that methamphetamine is a dopaminergic substance. It works on the dopamine neurotransmitter primarily, whereas MDMA worked on the serotonin uh, neurotransmitter primarily and secondarily norepinephrine and perhaps uh, dopamine. So here he was writing about the serotonergic effects really of methamphetamine, which doesn't have any. So the whole thing is kind of a, 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 a terrible abuse of uh, science and uh, caused quite a stir. It but caused a tremendous, it caused a tremendous stir yeah. and it left the public with the impression that MDMA is far more hazardous than it turned out to be, in part, in, uh, from my research, because Congress and the former director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, Alan Leshner, came out strongly about how dangerous MDMA was, even after Riccardi was forced to retract his entire article. British scientists went on record expressing their concerns, Phil, by, by calling it I have a quote here. It's an outrageous scandal. Uh, this one Dr. Iverson said, uh, told the scientists, he said, the British people, the scientists said, it's another example of a certain breed of scientist who appears to do research on illegal drugs mainly to show what the governments want them to show. They extract large amounts of grant money from the government to do this sort of biased work. That's quite an indictment. You, you beat me to the quote. I had it in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, uh, but actually, I had encountered it when I was in med school in the, the heyday of LSD. There was a guy at NYU who was making his reputation on finding chromosomal breaks caused by LSD, which was bogus work. He did very well, 
and then eventually that was retracted. There were no chromosomal breaks. So there's a, a long history of uh, toadies, sycophants, uh, working to make money and reputation within science. So you have to always look at science with a grain of salt and look at uh, who's sponsoring who and who's going where. It's it's intimidating. It really is. That and we it's ha- fascinating, too. You and know? Fascinating at the same time. Yeah. Uh, one of one of the things I didn't tell you, uh, listeners about you is that you're also a Buddhist practitioner. So these words of wisdom that come out when I say it's intimidating and you say it's fascinating are also delightfully and beautifully from your Buddhist background, which I very much appreciate. You're very sweet to me. Thank you. <laughs> well, you've always been very sweet to me as well, Phil. So, okay, here we go now. You're practicing. You're using... Um, Let me just take a short break and say here, our interview today is with Dr. Phil Wolfson. He recently got a grant from the uh, federal government to do research on the psychedelic medicine, MDMA. We're here on KZYX and Z, 90.7 FM in Philo, KZYZ, 91.5 FM, Willits and Ukiah, and K. 201 HR 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. So keep listening back to our interview with Dr. Phil Wolfson. What happens? Richard, with- I, I, I'm sorry, but I, I have to make a small correction. I don't mean to correct you. Um, we have FDA approval for a study of uh, MDMA in life threatening illness uh, people. And we, we can explain that more. We don't have a grant uh, from the FDA. They don't give grants. MAPS is a self-supporting organization. We look to donations from people outside. We have no government grants. And uh, what we have is the uh, FDA approval that allows us to do a phase two study. There are three phases to get from science to the prescription pad. So drugs that are in development, this is an orphan drug. It has no patent because it was first uh, patented in 1912, and that patent expired many decades ago. So in any case, uh, phase one is for assessing toxicity of a substance. Phase two, which is what we're in in our drug development of MDMA, is to assess both safety and effectiveness in small numbers. And then you go on to a phase three, much larger study, which sets the stage for uh, prescription and and use uh, by prescription uh, in the world. So we're in phase two, <clears throat> excuse me, moving towards phase three, uh, particularly with studies uh, directed at post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. And our study in the Bay Area is the first one with MDMA, and uh, it is an attempt to look at anxiety in people who've had a terrible illness and are fearing recurrence, relapse, or death itself, but have uh, a life expectancy ahead of them. And that anxiety, we hope, will be reduced by what we call MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So it's a, a very complex approach to working with MDMA in a thoughtful and uh, integrated uh, psychotherapy practice. Let me take you back to the time when MDMA was legal and you, sure. were, and you were allowed to use it and you did use it as a psychiatrist in your practice. You also at that time must have known 
other therapists who were using it in their practice. What was the interchange? What was the, the communication in terms of the usefulness of this medicine or the dangers of this medicine back then prior to its becoming illegal? Well, it was in small-scale use. By that, I mean tens of thousands. Now, one estimate has 29 million users in one year, uh, 2012. So uh, the scope has gone up a bit. Uh, and, of course, the reporting of hazards has gone up. There, were, there was very little of it then. But it, it became renowned as a therapy drug. Uh, people using it. There were quite a large number of practitioners and informally connected and through some informal organizations that we formed to collaborate and exchange data. That data was quite persuasive in its use for couples, helping uh, relationships integrate and people becoming expressive. We had a lot of people got married on MDMA. We used to warn people, don't get married on MDMA. You're in the glow. You know, take a little time, see if the glow persists after use. Uh, but people didn't always listen. I know a few, a few marriages that have survived over these decades after an MDMA uh, set of sessions. We used it for uh, individuals. Depression was a, had wonderful effects, uh, you know, not 100%, but people often got better with a series of sessions uh, with MDMA in a psychotherapeutic context. Uh, anxiety often improved. Um, we didn't have the capacity. It was a short period, really, from 1982 to 1985 when it became illegal and, and research could no longer continue. It was a short period to uh, develop uh, this within a very informal network but there were there were lots of publications. There was uh, there were books uh, that were influenced by it, and I would say many many people were influenced by their experience with uh, MDMA in a positive way. And what about negative ways? Did you were there problems that you heard about from your colleagues or that you ran into? Well, in your you know, there are always minor side effects to begin with. So there's jaw clench, there's headache. Uh, many people experience a uh, a down the day after with headache and kind of uh, emptiness and grayness, which can persist for two days. Some people talk of a midweek low. I have never seen that uh, in, in my extensive uh, use, uh, but uh, that's reported. So uh, there is dehydration if you uh, don't drink enough, and that was a source of problems that came uh, during the illegal period with raves where people were in high uh, heat environments and uh, didn't drink properly and there were several deaths, quite a few related to lack of caution about uh, uh, proper hydration and later there was overhydration but during this legal period uh, we saw very little. I saw one strange uh, reaction that I could not explain uh, which ended up with a person uh, on a known batch of MDMA ending up in the ICU with a neurological illness. She fully recovered, but there was no explanation for that. So like all drugs, uh, you know, there's a, a certain level of uh, taking a risk when you do something and idiosyncratic reactions. Um, uh, if we're talking about safety, we could go on to the overall look at it. Would you like me to do that? 
Yes, please, because people are listening to this program, Phil, and they're hearing about thousands of people who took it in their therapist's office between 1982 and 1985. They're also hearing that 29 million people have used it recreationally. In one year. In one year, 29 million people. So people listening are liable to be saying to themselves, gee, uh, this sounds like something I'd like to try. And we also have a responsibility to tell them, you know, what might happen that's not very pleasant. Uh, Sure, I'd like to do that. Please. I I, I think it's really important for people to be informed users. So um, in general, the substance is quite safe. Mixing it with other substances has been a cause of problems, and most of the deaths attributable to MDMA are attributable to a mix of substances ranging from alcohol, meth, um, Valiums. Uh, It's uh, quite an interesting assortment. But uh, the uh, number of actual deaths related to pure MDMA itself is is small but present. So there there is some risk. You want to be in a good set and setting. You want to be with people, if you can, who are responsible uh, and will help you out if you get in trouble. Almost no one gets in trouble in a good set and setting. In our set of uh, studies of over 900 people, there have been no significant uh, medical problems uh, that's within the MAP set of studies, uh, which is a remarkable statistic. So the things to watch out for are getting too hot, uh, MDMA, MDA, uh, substances that are related to amphetamines and methamphetamines can cause a heat uh, problem and you want to cool off. Uh, using and mixing substances can be problematic. You should try and know what you're doing. And uh, There's a question of whether there's such a thing as a, an MDMA overdose. So uh, there's an argument against speaking of that. There was a death in England of a young girl, a tragic death not long ago of a 15-year-old who weighed 100 pounds. And one story says she took 500 milligrams, which is four times usual dosage. Um, <clears throat> there are issues of purity that come up as well. So this girl apparently was uh, in a a group that had gotten a a powerful, new, more pure uh, MDMA substance. And the dilution of MDMA has been extreme uh, in many cases. So uh, lots of people were getting uh, pills and tablets that might have had 25, 30% or even less MDMA and other dilutants. So one issue for consumers is know what you're getting. Now, let's talk about... where you're getting it from. Yeah, let me interrupt and talk about that. Can you recommend a place where people can send something they buy and get an honest analysis so they know what it is that they're taking since they're not allowed to buy it legally at the drugstore? Well, the the most uh, beneficial one is called Dance Save that did analyses. Uh, I'm not sure of current status of other testing agencies. I can't recommend one, but if you go online and look at Dance Save or MDMA testing, you'll you'll find that. Dance Save was a, uh, a group established just to do this to make sure that there was safety amongst users at raves and parties and other things, and it was 
done entirely for the benefit of people without money being an issue. It's a, a worthy thing to look at. And there's also a website called Arrowid that has uh, intellectual content to read about, E-R-O-W-I-D, I believe. I can't, couldn't help emphasize that more. If you really want to know about what you're doing, what you're taking, read user reports, uh, and really have a sense of what's going on currently in the world of psychoactive drugs, go to Arrowwood. They're great people. They're doing a great service. Let's fast forward now. It's uh, 2014. Um, MDMA has been illegal for over two decades. Very little research has been allowed. Has any research been allowed in the last 25 years or so on this, uh, Phil? Well, actually, the field of psychedelic research has fortunately been growing. Uh, it requires uh, uh, support from FDA a in terms of approvals but there is a mechanism and that mechanism began to be used by both organizations you mentioned in the beginning by hefter exploring the realm of psilocybin uh use particularly uh for uh mystical states of mind uh and centered mainly at johns hopkins now expanded to new york university um and my group maps uh, which uh, began looking at MDMA, did the first safety study back in the 90s, and has been publishing on post-traumatic stress disorder and supporting researchers with a variety of materials. There was a recent uh, completed study uh, through MAP support in Switzerland on the use of LSD and PTSD, which is a very successful study of naive people receiving significant LSD dosages and having improvement in their uh, uh, scores and in their life. So uh, there has been uh, an accelerating uh, amount of interest in uh, the scientific research of uh, both substances and in general of psychoactive substances as the world of psychiatry remains quite narrow and confined to medications that are very partially successful and as worldwide use of substances is enormous and the war on drugs uh, you know has clearly failed uh, for drugs of misuse that are difficult like cocaine and opiates and has failed in controlling substances like uh, LSD or <clears throat> MDMA in this case so uh, uh, we are fortunate to have end entered a period where there's more and more research going on. My study is one of multiple studies in the United States, Israel, uh, Spain, uh, a variety of countries in the world looking at uh, MDMA and its effects on uh, mind in a scientific way. Earlier in the program, you said that as long as the set and setting were appropriate, uh, this is a very safe medicine. Please elaborate on the word set and setting, and what does that mean to our listeners? Well, the setting is the obvious one. Uh, <clears throat> be in a, a, a comfortable, safe place with support when you do substances. Uh, people I know who have gotten in trouble, kids and others, have been out in the world and uh, places where their heightened vigilance is, uh, is necessary because they're doing something that... Uh, makes them more wary and puts them uh, in the view of police, etc. So, you know, doing it in a comfortable, supportive place 
is a, a great thing for the exploration of mind. Um, the set idea is what you bring to it, your own mental status, your own view of things, where you are with yourself. And it's a very good practice before you use a, a substance that's psychedelic to spend a day getting clear and clean to prepare yourself to make it a sacred experience, one that recognizes the power of what you're going to do and doesn't just take it for granted. When you take that time, when you prepare yourself, when you meditate, when you uh, do some exercise or yoga before, when you really uh, set the stage, light candles, create an environment that is conducive to your use uh, of a substance, your exploration is definitely going to go deeper and your safety will be much better. So you're talking about really the difference between creating an ambiance, a setting, and a mental set so that your taking of the substance is the taking of a medicine rather than the, quote, doing drugs. Yeah, I'd say that's a good idea. A lot of uh, people, the vast number, have gotten away with doing drugs and have gotten myriad benefits from it. But if you want to improve your uh, odds, do it the way we just discussed. Yes. Now, given that uh, listeners are hearing this and and they're they're going to perhaps experiment, um, some people suggest that when you do this in the privacy of your own home, you do not do certain things such as answer the telephone or turn on the television set or... Uh, go to the front door and start uh, talking to people uh, who happen to be in the neighborhood. Uh, how do you feel about those things, and what other kinds of privacy or safeguards might you recommend? Well, it's good to turn the telephone off. It's good to uh, not uh, distract with things that are silly. I think uh, having great music is always a, a benefit if you wish to listen to music. It's deepening having instruments where you might play uh, drums or have bells. I love bells. I think they, the the sound of bells is penetrating and overcomes uh, obsession and other preoccupations. Not operating motor vehicles or heavy-duty machinery. Uh, taking the time to make the space solid and taking the time afterwards to integrate. So a lot of us talk about integrative work or sessions after an experience. Uh, I think that's a, a really good way to go is to take the time to uh, to really look at your experience, to try and remember it as best as possible, to take some notes um, for your own benefit because memory does fade and it's sometimes hard to recover the memories of an experience and to uh, sit with those with whom you might have traveled on a journey. That was the voice of Dr. Phil Wolfson, prominent West Coast psychiatrist who recently was granted a federal license to do research on the psychedelic medicine MDMA. You're here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. We're talking about uh, MDMA, and I want to move on now to a discussion of the uh, study that you're going to be doing. Uh, please tell us about it. Sure. Um it's an exciting study. We uh, were given a grant by uh, a man who unfortunately died uh, to explore the uh, effects of MDMA on people with a life-threatening illness uh, who are at risk for 
relapse or recurrence or uh, death itself. We've designed the study to maximize the possibility for uh, observing the effects of MDMA. So people entering our study, and if any uh, of your listeners, our folks are interested, they could get in touch with me about uh, this. Um, we're, we've designed the study so that... But let me interrupt uh, you there, Phil. Are you looking for subjects who have a life-threatening illness? We will be in January who have anxiety about a life-threatening illness. We will be in, in January as we get up and running. Okay, let uh, me give a phone number. Uh, first to call into the show, which is uh, 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103 if you want to ask Dr. Wolfson a question. And how do they get in touch with you if they think they might be uh, ap appropriate to be a subject in your experiment? Well, at this point, go to the MAPS website, M-A-P-S in capitals, and uh, you can work and find our study and uh, leave me a message through MAPS. Excellent. Be glad to get back to you. Okay. Um, so anyway, we we have uh, this uh, study that's going to take probably a year and a half to two years because it's complex uh, and uh, involves a randomized uh, uh, assorted, assorted uh, group of people into subjects who will receive placebo and then go on to MDMA sessions or into the group that receives the MDMA from the start. And uh, we've designed it so that uh, it includes people who are not terminally ill, who have a life-threatening illness but are not uh, acutely ill, so that the study, which will take at least three months uh, for each person, uh, can go on without uh, being severely impacted by people's uh, declines or illnesses that may uh, inevitably occur, unfortunately. So uh, the study it has a large therapy component. We go through a screening process uh, to accept people, and then we do uh, a series of sessions. Uh, people will be uh, uh, housed at my home uh, where the actual uh, we hope that it will be a great experience for our participants. That sounds like a, a fascinating experiment, and you're beginning. To, you're going to be doing that in January, is when it begins, or when you well, start. Well, we have, we we hope to start in January. We have received the FDA approval, which is the go ahead, and we are working with uh, two internal review boards. We finished with one, almost with another, and we're waiting then on the uh, DEA to come inspect the premises. I've had to put a safe in my house. And we've wired the place because the DEA requires uh, stringent security mechanisms to protect the uh, uh, MDMA that they ship to us unmarked and per person in special uh, vials that come through a uh, formulating pharmacy. It goes in the safe, and they're very concerned about security for that. What, what do you mean when you say you've wired the house? <laughs> what is... Oh, we have to put an alarm system up as well on the room in which the safe is located. I see. We're going to uh, take a caller here, Phil. Great, great. Whoops. Well, it sounds like we, uh, we got a buzz instead of a caller. Can you get rid of that? Thank you, Michael. Maybe the caller will uh, we'll call back. The number here is 707-937-5103. 707-937-5103 if you have a question uh, for uh, Dr. Wolfson.
Um, when people, oh, here comes the um, here comes the caller again. We'll give him another try. Give him a push there, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, thanks for your program. You're welcome. Uh, yes, I uh, wanted to ask um, about uh, the actual letters in MDMA. Um, can you tell me what MDMA stands for? Sure. You want me to do it or you want to do it? Go ahead. Well, the, uh, the full name is 3,4-methylene-dioxy-methamphetamine. So methylene-dioxy-methamphetamine. Okay. Now, the reason I ask is um, I have heard of MDA, um, and uh, the MDMA part, I would rather, if I'm going to be taking this, I would rather not have the side effects of um, methamphetamine. And I'm wondering if there is a pure substance that you are working with um, that uh, that works without the methamphetamine. Thank you. Uh, I, I would point you to a certain confusion and look at uh, pictures if you can. So MDA is amphetamine. It's just the, the difference is if you look on the molecule, one molecule has the amphetamine structure. The methamphetamine means a CH3 group is put on another part of it. Neither substance, uh, MDA or MDMA, resembles in effect only at best partially amphetamine or MD uh, or methamphetamine. Both have pretty similar side effects. Um, hyperthermia, too much temperature, is the cause of problems with both substances. Um, jaw clench occurs with both substances. So anything related structurally to amphetamine, methamphetamine, will have some of those side effects. Uh, but they are very different molecules. They have very different effects than methamphetamine or amphetamine. There is no pure such thing. Uh, if you look again at structure, mescaline is uh, in the same framework. There are myriad uh, psychoactive substances that are related to those. And then if you look further, you'll see that many of the spices on your shelf also have very similar structures. So uh, structural analysis of uh, molecules, their effects uh, and their effects on mine are very intricate and uh, uh, not just straightforward. Thank you. We have another caller here, Phil. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yes, thank you. Uh, my question is, I'm sorry I just joined a couple minutes ago, but um, previous caller has, was talking about the differences, uh, as you said. My, my question was more of a historical one. It got me thinking about uh, methamphetamine and the history of its use in our country. Uh, and um, was it used, um, and I know this is slightly unrelated to what we're talking about, but I think it coincides, was methamphetamine used uh, during the invasion of D-Day um, to help invigorate or fuel our troops as they were entering that cold water or is the, do you know anything about that I'm, I'm really I'm, I'm still intrigued in learning so much more about this um, methamphetamine epidemic that our country is uh, is going through and I'll take I'll take the answer off the air thank you you know anything about the use of MD of, uh, well, of, of amphetamines yeah, yeah amphetamines go way back and they were uh, used as stimulants certainly in war to uh, make troops go farther, faster, with less uh, attention to pain and difficulty. It's a long history of that. 
current history of that. I know, and there's there's uh, quite a bit of information. I'm sure it's on the internet about uh, the German army using it. Hitler was trying. Uh, he used the word supermension. He was trying to uh, produce with methamphetamine. I know it's been used with football players in this country too, but not with uh, positive effects. Here's another caller. Let's take it, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Uh, yes, I just wanted to uh, clarify my last question about the methamphetamine. Um, is there uh, a delivery system for the uh, sassafras route, basically, uh, besides uh, speed? And uh, thank you very much. Well, saffron is the uh, usual route to production of uh, MDMA. Uh, <clears throat> it's got very small effects on its own. It's not available. It's been heavily controlled to cut off production of MDMA. I have no idea about sassafras root being psychoactive, but we'd have to look at Everwood or some other place. What can you tell us, Phil, about um, long-term use of MDMA? Well, that's been a very uh, controversial subject. I'm glad you raised it. Um, you know, the controversy has been spread by the uh, notion of holes in the brain and uh, all kinds of difficulties with brain function. I don't think any of that has really stood up. There are a large variety of studies, many of them quite controversial in terms of how they're structured. Um, I think my brain's working pretty well. My friend's brains are working pretty well. Um, Sasha Shulgin just died. He was 86. His brain really worked well until he had a stroke at 83. Uh, you know, it's anecdotal. The studies are, to my mind, are really not conclusive of damage. There are some studies that argue for it. There are studies against it. Um, I, I frankly don't see it. When we had the uh, the last cocaine epidemic, which goes in cycles, as you know, about every 20 years or so, uh, there were reports from all over the United States of admissions to uh, emergency rooms of people taking overdoses of uh, of cocaine. You tell us that uh, 29 million people uh, approximately used uh, MDMA uh, last year. Are we getting reports from around the country from emergency rooms on admissions as a result of MDMA use or not? Well, there are great statistics. There's a, a very interesting uh, online group called the DEA.org, if you really want to look at statistics. And uh, for the last period reporting, I'm looking at it as we talk, there were 5,542 visits to emergency room uh, rooms across the United States. That's in 2001. Apparently we don't have more recent data. And that's for a huge number of use. If you take a look at paroxetine Paxil, which I would imagine is in much less use, uh, that's 8,932 uh, uh, visits. Amphetamines, 18,000. Non-steroidals, your ibuprofen, uh, naproxen, Aleve, uh, Advil, et cetera, 22,000. All antidepressants, 61,000. Goes on and on and on. So uh, within the sense of safety, there's certainly people who go to emergency rooms for various reasons. Those uh, MDMA uh, numbers apply to uh, also other drugs that are being used along with MDMA, so it's not a 
pure statistic, but, you know, certainly people go in for anxiety reactions, for uh, physical reactions of various sorts. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the 61,000 mission to, to emergency rooms for people on antidepressants sort of ties in with a uh, guest we had a few weeks ago for the second time, Robert Whitaker, his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, in which he talks about uh, his research indicating that the antidepressants are causing mental illness. Uh, let's take this uh, call here. Thank you, Michael. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yes, hello. Thanks for the show. You're welcome. I have a question about where is the uh, ecstasy that's used illicitly coming from? Is it coming from laboratories and then being black marketed or is it are people cooking it up in the uh, back room or uh, could you comment on that please uh, thank you uh, we, i hope you're not asking where to go but uh, <laughs> um the uh production of ecstasies across the board the there's a large amount apparently coming in from china there's uh, stories of north korea making drugs of a variety of sorts, which I think is true uh, as a way for them to make money. India is another source, and then uh, uh, sources within countries such as the United Kingdom or this country, uh, people are making the substance. Uh, I don't know about back rooms, but uh, there are, are synthesizers all across the, the country and the globe. Is it difficult to make? I mean, during Prohibition uh, for alcohol, people were able to make uh, booze in, in their homes because it's relatively easy to make. What about uh, MDMA? MDMA is difficult. You need precursors. You don't just get there with uh, from scratch. It's not like you start with, uh, you know, tundra or earth and get there. You have to have precursors. The precursors are tightly controlled. There are many different syntheses. I'm not an authority on how easy or how difficult to make it. And what about the use of uh, MDMA with other psychedelic substances? You want to tell us a little bit about that? We have a few minutes left. Sure. It's quite common for people to do an admixture, that is to put more than one substance with another one, and to uh, try and um, uh, affect the nature of uh, one substance by another. So it's common use, for instance, to uh, take uh, MDMA with LSD, for example. Uh, MDMA is used uh, with many other substances to make them a bit more smooth. Um, so it goes both ways. But uh, admixtures are, are common in the uh, uh, psychoactive world. I have a question here uh, was given to me. Uh, is MDMA a sex drug? Uh, it depends who you talk to. Uh, <laughs> MDMA is, is certainly a sensual drug. Um, the general uh, uh, idea out there is that it doesn't lead to sex. I would argue with that. It may well lead to sex. It may well lead to a lovely sex. It's pretty difficult for people to uh, have an orgasm on uh, MDMA, but I'm sure some people have achieved that. Um so it's an extremely sensual substance. When we did the first study of MDMA, which was done in 1984 in a, a home, a wonderful home in Stinson Beach, uh, I was one of the people designing the study and not taking the substance. It was very difficult 
to proceed with the neurologicals and mental statuses I was doing with the 20 or so subjects there because they were just, you know, uh, hugging and kissing and touching, and it was very hard to get attention. It's a very sensual drug for many people. Is that the study that Jack Downing was involved with? Yeah, I wrote the study. Jack and I did it. Oh, my gosh. I have another question here. Uh, It says... um, MDMA has an effect on blood pressure, I'm told. Is that correct? Yes. So, uh, like many substances uh, in use, it raises blood pressure. Uh, It doesn't usually raise it to any great degree, but it commonly can raise uh, systolic and diastolic uh, 10 millimeters to 20 millimeters of mercury. So, from 120, 130, 140 might be quite common. It's transient. It goes away. The second half of the question here is, is if it, since it does affect blood pressure, what about the use of MDMA with uh, uh, Viagra and Cialis, which lower blood pressure? Is that going to create a problem? Uh, I, I can't answer that question. I don't have enough information on that. But as far as raising the blood pressure, that has not been an, uh, an issue that uh, cause of concern and leading to, uh, to emergency rooms and so on. Not that I'm aware of. Okay, we're reaching the end of, uh, of our interview. Is there any uh, last-minute thing you might want to mention to our listeners about uh, MDMA? Well, I, I think, you know, for more information, uh, our website at MAPS is terrific. There's bulletins and information uh, available on it. Arrowwood's a great source, E-R-O-W-I-D, for information. And uh, be educated, be thoughtful about your use, and uh, uh, remember it's still illegal. We have just passed Proposition 47 in California, which really reduces penalties for possession in a wonderful way. You should look at the terms of Prop 47 and understand it. It's a major change in uh, our uh, drug prohibition policy locally. It's a great thing. So, no, I have been delighted to be with you, Richard. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Phil Wolfson, for being with us today here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And personally, thank you, Phil. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend Mike DeLora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.